is not the religion, not the relationship for the rich and famous or for those who desire to maintain the status of the rich and famous. This is the religion. This is the relationship with Jesus the Nazarene. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. And if you will stand, we will be reading verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Please stand as we read from God's Word, the very God-breathed words of the universe. What an amazing thing. We read those every week. I mean, has that ever just gotten normal to you? When it does, there's a problem. This is what, this is what the God of the universe has to say, and he said, he said it perfectly. It's inspired literally, grammatically, historically, contextually, all those ways. I just pray that you rejoice in our reading of and our understanding of the word. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when they saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his weed into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Please be seated. Now, even as we speak this morning, (laughs) excuse me, Russia and Ukraine rattle sabers at one another in a tense standoff, competing kingdoms, as, they, as we might refer to them today, nations. And one of the hottest topics in our world today, and really in the world since the Tower of Babel, is how nations relate to one another in the exercise of sovereignty and authority. However, 
What the world forgets in the clash of earthly nations is that all peoples and nations are accountable to one king, and it is his kingdom that will prevail in the eventual elimination of all competing authorities. And so our study this morning will take us back to the time when the rightful king of the universe was poised to make his first official appearance on the earth. What we will see is that the kingdom of heaven is offered to all, but may only be entered by those who recognize their king and receive their king in humble repentance. Again, the kingdom of heaven is offered to all, but may only be entered by those who recognize their king and receive their king in humble repentance. In Matthew chapter 3, we've already seen the lineage of the king, that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We've seen the birth of the king. He is virgin born. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the perfect God-man. We've seen the worship of the king, where formerly pagan mystics come from the east and bow down and worship the king of the Jews, the one whom they rightfully know to be king of the Jews, while the, while the so-called king of the Jews sits in Jerusalem plotting the death of the true king of the Jews. And the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders ignore the implications of the Magi coming and the baby being born in Bethlehem and either out of fear of Herod or total indifference because it doesn't seem to matter in the political situation. They ignore their own Messiah and they don't even go. So the king is worshipped first by those who are outside of the nation of Israel, Gentiles who come and fall on their knees before the true king of Israel. We've also seen the threat to the king, that the so-called or so-named king of the Jews, as he plots the destruction of the true king of the Jews, seeks to kill all of the children in Bethlehem under two years of age, and he does. But before that, God reveals in a dream to Joseph that they should flee to Egypt. He does this in fulfillment of scripture. They go from Egypt then to Nazareth in fulfillment of scripture. And so the circle is complete. Jesus is now called the Nazarene, a nobody from nowhere in the world's eyes. And that will always be true in the world's eyes. Now, isn't it fascinating? Jesus wasn't a nobody from nowhere. That's what Matthew was saying. He was a somebody from somewhere. Even in his earthly birth, he was born where? In Bethlehem, the city of kings. And yet the world knows nothing of this. And the world does not pursue Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem. They think of him as Jesus, the son of an illegitimate union between Joseph and Mary, who was a Nazarene. That's how, understand, do you understand that? That's how the world views him and always has. He's not the mighty king. He's the illegitimate child. He wasn't born in the right place. He was born nowhere. And by the way, when you associate with the king of kings, then you receive the same treatment. This is not the religion, not the relationship for the rich and famous or for those who desire to maintain the status of the rich and famous. This is the religion. This is the relationship with Jesus the Nazarene. So we saw the threat to the king, divinely understood and sovereignly worked through so that Jesus is safely in in Nazareth before he begins his ministry. And then we saw the herald to the king breaking upon the scene in Matthew chapter 3. We have the coming of the king of kings heralded. And a king must have a herald. Kings do not show up at a particular place without someone coming to proclaim that they are going to come. That happens in fairy stories, but generally kings always pronounce their coming. They're the king. And so they need to be properly received. 
Well, that's what's going on here. The King of Kings is about to make his official entrance into ministry and into the world. That is, in a public way, he's already been alive, we know, for 30 years. He was born probably six months after John the Baptist was born. Jesus was. John the Baptist is probably close then to 30 years of age. Jesus is as well. It's about AD 27 because Jesus wasn't born exactly on zero, probably two or three BC. And so bursting onto the scene at this time, the herald comes to say the king is coming. And we began discussing, well, how will this herald proclaim the king? Now remember, this is the king of the universe. This is the Messiah. This is the savior king. That's what Matthew's all about. This is the one who will save his people from their sins. He will save them from death and hell. He is the only savior of all the world. He is the one who has ruled the world. He's the one who created the world. How will he be announced? Something impressive, I'm sure. Well, no, not exactly. Because we looked at the method. By what method is this king announced? Well, a host of armies that trample into Jerusalem proclaiming the king. Maybe uh, an impressive entourage with gifts to, pro- to, to lavishly give to say the king is here. No, we have a solitary man. And remember, we'll talk more about the man in, in coming weeks, his specifics. But we have a solitary man, John the Baptist, appointed for this task, preaching. Now, we know him as John the Baptist, but he's first known as John the Preacher. He comes preaching. He baptizes later. First he preaches, and then as a result of that, he baptizes. So he comes to preach. He's just speaking a message. What's impressive about that? And of course, you understand that the world sees it the same way today. Well, we don't need preaching. We need everything else. We need shows. We need dramas. We need, we need everything but preaching because who wants to listen to preaching? Do you think that's ever been different? It hasn't wasn't all that much different in the time of Christ either. People would come doing impressive things. Well, John comes preaching. Well, how about a good location? Certainly he's going to pick the best place. How about the streets of Jerusalem? How about the king's palace? They wouldn't go to him, so maybe the herald will come to Herod or his now his, his progeny. Well, no, he comes where? The wilderness. So he comes preaching in the wilderness. He comes in a place that's hard to go to, a place that's hard, hard to stay in with a message that's Hard to hear as we'll see in a person that is preaching in such a way or giving the message in such a way that it takes a lot of attention even to hang on to it. Not even getting any help. No big screen TVs. No sound system. Nothing. He comes preaching in the wilderness. People are going to have to get up and go. They're going to have to go to him and even come to them. I'm not saying that always has to be the pattern. I'm only saying that preaching is the pattern. And you would think maybe the herald to the king of kings would come in a little different way. But he didn't. He comes in the wilderness. But then comes the really hard part. Preaching, not too impressive yet. Okay, people preach. He's a prophet after all. That's what prophets do. Wilderness, well, probably not everybody's going to go there. But even that's not all that unusual because the prophets would go to the wilderness area. So not all that unknown in the time of Israel or in their history. But the thing that is really difficult is the message. You would think maybe that the king would come with a message of his great benevolence. He would say, look, this is all that I will give to you. These are all the things you could have. And the herald comes and says, look, this is what the king will do for you. This is how the king will provide for you. These are all the things that you can get from the king. He's the king. But no, what does he come? He comes with one sentence, beginning with one word, and it's the hardest possible thing that he could ever have said. He says what? Repent. Now, what the people were expecting was rejoice. What they heard was repent. And of course, that's what our world, that's where our world is at, at well, as well. They would like to hear, rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're in the kingdom. We get to be part of it. But instead, to his very own people, the herald comes and says, your king, your ethnic king, 
comes and commands you to repent. And we talked about that in depth last week. What is repentance? It's a change of heart and mind, the necessity of repentance. The change of heart and mind, it's a call to conversion. That's what repentance is, which is why it must be a gift from God. You can't convert your own heart. Oh, don't, don't mistake me. This is a wrestle of mind and will. We'll talk about that. It's not like because the Spirit of God does work in our hearts that it makes this easy. This is the giving of your own life. This is never easy, even though it is worked in you by the Spirit of God. So repentance is a change of heart and mind, a call to conversion. It's a gift from God. Everyone must have it. Everyone without exception must repent. There's no one who enters into the kingdom without first repenting. And repenting always comes from hearing the message. We know that from Romans chapter 10. How will they hear unless they have a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? How will they believe the one in whom they have not heard? It's not possible without a message. And so John comes bringing that message, repent. And we gave the final definition of repentance last week was to hate the evil of sin, to accept as right the condemnation for sin, to agree with the justice of the eternal punishment for sin, to grieve over the reality of sin, and to make a willful decision to turn away from sin. That's repentance. It's not merely a change of mind. It is that. It's a change of mind and heart and will. And it is only possible through the Word of God by the power of the Spirit of God. But it is nonetheless a turning of your will, your inner man. That's what's necessary for repentance. Remember, repentance as used in Matthew certainly includes the concepts of turning away from sin and trusting in Christ. Because it's the message that Jesus brings. He's like, well, okay, the herald said that. And remember, John the Baptist is functioning in many ways as an Old Testament prophet. He's baptizing doing with water for repentance, doing these other things. So maybe Jesus will come with a different message. Maybe, maybe he will come and say, well, John had the old message. I've got the new message. The king comes with the exact same message. Matthew chapter 4, the king says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And again, as we fill that in with the rest of Scripture, we understand that the repent is a turn from sin and turn to Christ. And the word can bear both of those. And it does. But what have I been focusing on? And what does John the Baptist focus on first? Turn from. Because until you understand what you are turning from, until you understand the heart condition, the life condition that makes it necessary for you to turn, then a turning to Christ is surely false. A running to Christ before there's a recognition of sin is a false conversion. And so first, John the Baptist comes saying, repent. And I make no apologies for resting on turn from. We will get to turn to. And we will, we will the, the, the New Testament brings us the beauty of the turning to. But it also brings us the, the necessity of the turning from. Let us not move too quickly. I know some of you last week were sitting there, where's the turn to? Now you're believers, most of you who are thinking that. You've already done the turn to. Praise the Lord. But if you're an unbeliever sitting here or out in the world, you cannot turn to until you turn from. And so there is a, there's a heavy emphasis in the scriptures and with the very herald of the king to say, turn from your sin because you are dead, as we will see. You are unable to come to Christ. There is a standard for this kingdom. Let's look at the, then the nature of the kingdom. So that's what we need to do. We haven't finished the message. The first part of the message, the first, the first word was repent. That's hard enough. But now we have the rest of this message, which is repent for, and the for is, it gives you the reason. Why do you have to repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And all of those words are full of meaning. We'll try to get some layers with it this morning. And remember the word layers. 
because we have uh, we have 20 some chapters of the book of Matthew to get through and really the rest of the New Testament before we all die. And and we're going to be doing layers upon layers of learning these things. So I'm going to introduce concepts that we'll learn more of later that I can only give you pieces of. I'll do my best to prove each one at the level that I want or that I think is best, but I, there's no way I can go in depth at all of these levels. So just take it, consider it, and move forward with me as we discuss it because there are no words that are more fraught with meaning than the kingdom of heaven, that phrase, and is at hand, that phrase. And these have caused just countless books and countless articles on what this actually means. So we're going to try to do it in about 20 minutes, getting started. And then we're doing it for the rest of the time in Matthew. So what's the nature of this kingdom? Why is it necessary that you must repent if the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand? Why? How do those two things go together? What is this kingdom like? And what does it mean that it's at hand? We're going to start with it. We're going to go in reverse order. We're going to start with the timing. What does John the Baptist mean when he says the kingdom is at hand? Because those words are not, no words in scripture, those words are not accidental. And I want you, I want to be very clear here that it does not say the kingdom has come. It does not say that. And nowhere in the book of Matthew does he say that. Always this is the way that it's used. It is at hand. Some of the, some, as you, if you translate this particular verb other places, it says it is near. See, the kingdom has come, that is, in a more final sense, right? In a completed sense. Well, that awaits things like the book of Revelation, where it says the kingdom of the world, is, the worlds have now become the kingdoms of Christ, where that's a completed action. Scripture is very clear and uses this phrase purposefully so that we will understand, and we're going to get the bigger picture of this, we will understand that there is a, a process that happens with the kingdom coming. And that's why he starts with the kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is about to be with ongoing consequences. And really, that's the tense of the verb used here. The tense of the verb is, look, this is something that is, but it is also something that is, that is it's, it has been, it is, and there's more. It has ongoing results into the future. That's the, that's the tense used here. And we understand that scripture is inspired literally and grammatically. The tenses of verbs also mean things, and this particular verb being chosen. Now, to get an idea of this timing of the kingdom, what does it mean at hand? Matthew 26, 45, Matthew uses this word again. It says, then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. This, is, this event is about to happen. I'm about to be betrayed. The hour, this period of time is about. It hasn't happened yet, but essentially the, the things that will bring it about are already in place. Yes, the people were already coming, right? The, the Roman guard that would take him away, they were already on the way. So this hour's at hand. Things are already in place for this to begin. It's about to have its kind of opening salvo, its opening act, and then it's going to have ongoing impact. That's the idea of at hand. He uses it in the next verse again, get up and let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Really, essentially, he's on the way. He's coming. Judas is coming. It's not here yet. And when he comes, there's certain things he's going to have to do and certain results that that will have. So that's the idea of this at hand. Peter uses it in 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is near. There's the word, is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Hand, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, Peter says in other places, we're in the last days. That is, any time from the ascension of Christ to where he returns a second time, we're in the last days. So his return or the end of all things is near. The things have happened. 
that they have taken place that prepare the way for the end of all things. Right? You are in process of working towards the end of all things. They're not here, but it's at hand. Really, you are part of the unfolding of all that is, go, will go on with the end of, the, of all things. Same way with the kingdom of heaven. So that's essentially the idea. It is here, but not fully, and there remain aspects that are still coming. It's a larger event. The kingdom is at hand. D.A. Carson says it this way. The ambiguous is near, that he uses here, is coupled with a dynamic sense of the kingdom, which we're about to define, and it prepares us for a constant theme. The kingdom came with Jesus and his preaching and his miracles. It came with his death. Notice we have a time progression there. Came with Jesus. It came with his death and resurrection, and it will come at the end of the age. That's the idea of at hand. All these things still have to come. That's the timing. But what's the nature? Why does Matthew use the phrase kingdom of heaven? He uses it 32 times in the book of Matthew, and it's really used only two other times, essentially two other times in all of the New Testament. Now, the idea of the kingdom of heaven is common in the Old Testament, and I think that's our first clue to why Matthew uses it. He uses it because his audience is extremely familiar with it. We sang this morning already, he is the king of heaven, right? So that's very understandable to the Jews. I think also very possibly he does not use kingdom of God, because the Jews were sensitive about even using the name of God, using the name Yahweh or, or even Jehovah. They, they, would, they would substitute. So I think he's sensitive about that. But I do not think, and I think Scripture bears this out, that he uses kingdom of heaven because kingdom of heaven is something separate for Matthew than, say, for Luke and John and Mark, he used kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is one thing, and kingdom of heaven is, a, is another thing. They're the same thing. He used a different term for them, but they are the same. And they bring the same results. It's the same, it's the same thing happening. You cannot separate those two out. He uses a different word for his audience, and it's going to communicate very clearly what he wants. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because all the same things that are said about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew are said about the kingdom of God in John and Luke and Mark. Same thing. So there's not a distinction between those. But Matthew uses this one distinctively for his distinctive audience. Now, these are not on your outline. The nature of the kingdom was your next point before you have those seven, seven things that you have there. So just kind of get these in wherever you can, on the back or on the side. But what's the nature of the kingdom? Well, this kind of kingdom, because remember, it says repent for. Again, why do you have to repent? What is it about this kingdom that makes it necessary for you to turn from sin? Well, there's a couple of things. This is, the, this is a kingdom that must be entered. That is, you're not already in it. You have to enter into this kingdom. It is coming, but when it comes, you're going to have to go in. It's not going to come and automatically include you. That's huge because the Jews were sure that they were already in. Okay, we're the ethnic people of God. So when the kingdom comes, it's our kingdom. And right off the bat, John is saying, no, in order to get into this kingdom that is coming, you're going to have to do something. Repent. That is, you have to change status of your heart. Talk about how seriously they saw that. So this is a kingdom that has to be entered. In order for anyone to be saved from eternal condemnation, they must enter into this kingdom of heaven. Luke 13, 24, Jesus says it this way, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You must go in. And the fact that there, is, there are no works done to get into this kingdom the fact that you cannot earn your way into it has nothing to do with the fact that there is not, again, in a repentance of heart 
that is necessary, and that that is an act of your will, a striving, as it were. Not a striving of good works to please God, but a striving to, to repent, to be humble as the Spirit of God works within you. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Matthew eleven twelve. very fascinating. Remember, we're doing all this in layers so that we'll learn more about this when we get to Matthew eleven twelve. It says, for, the, for from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus marks a very distinct period of time, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What in the world does that mean? You're like, yeah, that, what does that mean? It's the same thing as strive to enter through the narrow door. There's a wrestle of heart and soul. This is not entered into passively. You are not zapped into the kingdom. Even though the spirit of God does a work in our hearts through the word of God, there's a wrestle of will. That wrestle of will is to turn. You turn your will. Understand, I understand and I know that the spirit of God has done that work. He's the one that makes that possible. But your will has to turn. You turn it as he works within you. So there is an entering into this kingdom. It must be entered. And repentance is, is, the, is the way that that's entered. That's the change. That's the turning. Not good works, not a whole series of things that you do to earn your way into the kingdom. Repent. Recognize your, your absolute bankruptcy that you cannot enter into this kingdom. Your heart and your mind are changed as, uh, as a result of understanding your own status. Now, there's a, a, there's a standard necessary to enter the kingdom. See, if the kingdom could just be entered, then I'll, I just got to find the door, got to find the magic key, and I can get in. If it could be entered by any means, then this would not be such a big deal. Repent, okay. But the issue of repentance is directly driven by the, the, the necessary standard to get into the kingdom. This is not any kingdom or any king. He has a standard, and you know what the standard is. The standard is absolute perfection. You cannot enter this kingdom without that. Now, I didn't make up that standard. The Bible made up. God said this is my standard. And why? This only makes sense. He is the true king of the universe. He is the God who is holy and just and righteous and true. And so he can have no other standard. If he's a real God who really does have these characteristics, he cannot abandon them when it comes to his kingdom. His kingdom reflects his nature. And so we cannot come and say, I'm bringing the kingdom. You got to enter into it. And I know you can't get in. So I'll take whatever you got. It doesn't work that way. He's the king. And so he says, you must provide, or he demands an absolute perfection to enter into his kingdom. Matthew 5, 3 puts it in, in one way, puts this idea of, of the absolute perfection like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of Heaven, poor in spirit, those who humble themselves, those who recognize their bankruptcy, those who know that they cannot enter into this kingdom of their own. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's one way to put this. The other way to put it is Matthew 5.20. At the end of that sermon, as Jesus summarizes, or the end of that portion of the sermon, where Jesus summarizes his teaching there, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You're going to have to be poor in spirit. Who can be poor in spirit? No one on their own. Who has absolute humility of spirit? No one. Who truly recognizes their sin? The Bible says, no one. Who has absolute perfection? Who has never done anything wrong, both externally and internally? No one. But this is what Jesus says is the standard. Thus, there must be repentance. There must be a recognition of this because there is a standard necessary to enter the kingdom. So it's a kingdom that must be entered. It's a kingdom that has a standard. And really, binding all of that together is that it is the king that must be received. It is the king. And this makes this particular kingdom unique in all the annals 
of history, in all the annals of religion, there is no other kingdom like this one. You must have a personal relationship with the king. There is no one in this kingdom who is not individually and personally related to the king himself. Astounding. There's no kingdom like this. There is no religion like this. There is nothing like this in the annals of history. And this is why you must be perfect, because you cannot have a relationship with the king, thus being in his kingdom. That's the definition of it. If you have a relationship with him, a right relationship with him, you are in the kingdom. You cannot have that unless you receive the king. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.